Our Father in heaven, open up our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your word today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a year or two ago, I um, fell victim to clickbait on YouTube and I was watching a video of uh, the show Undercover Boss, which I'm not in a habit of watching, but if you don't understand um, Undercover Boss, the basic premise is a boss of a huge company, a CEO usually goes undercover to work on the ground. Um, and usually the story is that there's some manager there who's kind of lording it over the people and the boss goes undercover to experience what they're really like and then there's this moment of revelation where the boss reveals uh, himself or herself for who they are and in this particular one uh, there was quite a um, harsh manager who was really lording it over the people and everything was building up um, for this moment where her staff member, who she thought was just a new worker, didn't realize that was the boss and she was treating him quite harshly. And all of a sudden uh, she sits down in front of the new worker and then the, the new worker starts peeling off his face in quite dramatic fashion. And all of a sudden realizes that um, this new worker is actually the owner of this huge company and the, the look on her face of this manager who then realizes that the true authority has actually been revealed and the authority that she obviously hadn't felt moments before that is basically completely gone as the, the true authority is revealed. And Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four has had a similar moment where in this story, there is this revelation to him of the true authority over heaven and earth. And he gets to this point where he realizes that whatever authority he had in comparison to the most high God is actually nothing. And this is part of the main theme of Daniel, this idea of God's sovereign authority, his sovereign kingdom and him as king is absolutely authoritative and in control over all of the earthly rulers and authorities that we will see. And history is working itself toward this end, whereas we read in chapter two, this stone not cut by human hand, uh, any human hand, um, has already, in a sense, uh, crushed the authorities of this world where we read that Jesus made a public spectacle of them in the cross, but we are now awaiting the fullness of that consummation where God's kingdom will be fully realized. And so Daniel is this book that shows what lies behind the scenes of what we can actually uh, see. And that is a sovereign God who is absolutely in control. And in particular, in this story, we see God's sovereign kingdom. And we see also, I think, some applications of how we as people of the king are to live. So I'm going to read through Daniel chapter four now. And uh, after reading through it, we will then look through uh, the main stories in or the main scenes in this story and then draw out some key themes after that. So reading from Daniel chapter four from verse one, this is God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar 
to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed with these, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, 
in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may, be, may, may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles feathers and his nails were like birds claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is God's word. That is quite a story. I mean, it's, it is like perhaps even a combination of some of the worst rulers of near our time of maybe Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, and a few others being driven from their post and in utter humility coming to the point where they realize that the God of heaven and earth owns them and that they are to serve him alone. This is an incredible transformation. So let's work our way through the scenes in this story. And then uh, as we see this overarching theme of God's sovereign rule and his kingdom, I think we can then look at some themes from that about God's kingdom and then also particularly how we as a people of the king are to live. So in the first three verses, we have this doxology, which is words of praise. 
The story begins and ends with doxology, where Nebuchadnezzar proclaims a great God. This is just the overarching theme, the greatness of God and his kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar says, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is what Nebuchadnezzar wants us to know as he recounts the story of his dream and his utter humiliation. Despite the might of the Babylonian Empire, which at its time, as we read in the story, extended basically to all of the known world at that time, in spite of that, Nebuchadnezzar now realizes that there is one true kingdom and one true king who reigns over every single thing that we can see and whose, whose dominion will never be taken away, ever. He works signs and wonders, like we've seen whether he sustains human beings in a fiery furnace or whether he reveals dreams and visions that even the best of the Babylonian wisdom cannot come close to understanding. And while Nebuchadnezzar finally realizes that his kingdom and his kingship is limited, it's finite, the reality is that God has an everlasting kingdom which endures forever and ever, while every other kingdom, every other ruler that we will ever see and have ever seen in this world will come to an end. God's rule is the only one which will stand. I think to grasp the simple truth of God's enduring kingdom that lies behind all of the things that we can see in this world is incredibly liberating because it's another reminder for us that our hope does not lie in any person or government or kingdom of this world. So regardless of what happens in this world, we are not tossed about like infants because our hope lies in something absolutely concrete, which is God and his kingdom. And we shouldn't miss the reality of what has happened here. As I mentioned at the start, this is King Nebuchadnezzar. The man who by now at this point has completely destroyed Jerusalem. The cruel ruler who has slaughtered many. We read that he took uh, King Zedekiah, um, who was after Jehoiakim of the time around that the Israelites started to go off into exile. Nebuchadnezzar took the king of uh, Israel at that time, he slaughtered his sons before his eyes and then he gouged out the king's eyes so that the last thing that the king ever saw would be the death of all of his sons and kept him alive for that. And this is King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the man who, as we read last week, just sentenced Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to a cruel death by fire. Up to this point, he seems completely obstinate hard-hearted, and yet here he is praising the God of heaven and earth. He's actually a form of an evangelist. I mean, he's actually proclaiming, this God is great. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, bow my knees before him. Now, we don't ultimately know, the, the passage doesn't tell us specifically you know, how much of a transformation, whether Nebuchadnezzar actually did forsake all of the gods of Babylon, which would have been required to then worship Yahweh, who demands that no other gods are before him. But clearly there is some incredible transformation that comes on the back of his utter humiliation. Restoration almost always 
comes on the back of humiliation in one sense. And that's probably a topic that I'm going to approach next week. It's something that I think we could talk about here, but I'm going to look at the idea of humility a bit more in Daniel chapter 5 next week. So park that for now. The second scene here is from verses 4 to 8, where we read Nebuchadnezzar's desire to understand the dream. So this is where we actually enter the story. The first three verses are just an introduction, and then you have um, an ending Uh, for the last four or five verses. But here from verse four is the beginning of the story where Nebuchadnezzar explains the situation. He has another dream. Clearly we see that he has not changed since chapter two because he just follows the same pathway of getting all of the wise men and magicians and astrologers to come and help him understand. And when that doesn't happen, he finally uh, seeks Daniel and Daniel comes in again to save the day. And then from verses nine, to 17, we get this description of the dream. It's quite a, uh, an extraordinary dream where we read from verse 9. Nebuchadnezzar says, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. And his dream is of this huge tree that reaches the heavens and can be seen from the ends of the earth. The tallest tree in the world is a redwood in California, about 120 meters high, which is extraordinary. Um, You couldn't even see that from elsewhere in California. And yet this tree in the dream is supposed to be seen across the whole earth. It's a huge tree. It has beautiful fruit that can satisfy the appetites of all of the creatures of the world, all of the beasts find shade under it. They find their sustenance and their nourishment and their shelter from this. It starts off wonderful, but then from verse 13, the vision starts to go really downhill. We're in verse 13. This proclamation ends up going out from a watcher, a holy one, which is likely an angel, a messenger of God comes in. And says loudly, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts and birds flee. So the tree is demolished. This huge tree is uh, demolished, cut down. Its ability to provide for all of the creatures of the world is completely gone. All that is left is this stump bound by iron and bronze. And this stump is representative of a man whose portion will now simply be with the beast and whose mind will actually be changed to an animal's mind until seven periods of time happen, which uh, is likely uh, symbolic for the fullness of time. Often seven, as most of you know, is the number of completeness and fullness. And so there's uh, the fullness of whatever time is required for Nebuchadnezzar to reach the point of utter humility must happen until God will then exalt him and return him back to his place. And then from verses 18 to 26, we have the interpretation where Daniel comes in. He's alarmed and he says, clearly there's some uh, relationship between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, where Daniel says, oh, king, I wish that this was for someone else, not for you. But uh, nevertheless, this tree is you, Nebuchadnezzar. He goes on to say this, this gigantic tree that's cut down, is you nebuchadnezzar it's you and your reign and the decree of the watcher is a word to nebuchadnezzar that he will be driven from his place of authority completely removed all the way down to the lowest position in society no better than an animal this is actually dehumanizing nebuchadnezzar 
He becomes an animal effectively. And he has to stay in humility for seven periods of time until he knows that the Most High rules the kingdom, the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And the last part of this interpretation actually shows this glimmer of hope. So there is a glimmer of hope for Nebuchadnezzar that he will return to his place as king. Hence why the stump is left there, but only after he goes through the valley of humiliation. So Daniel then offers his own counsel, and we'll look at verse 27 a lot closer later, uh, which is basically Daniel saying, Nebuchadnezzar, repent. Here's my counsel. Repent and demonstrate your repentance through justice and mercy. Uh, But Nebuchadnezzar does not heed these words. As is often the case, he has to go through the valley of humiliation to then get to restoration. And then in verses 28 to 33, you have the fulfillment. We skip ahead 12 months. And Nebuchadnezzar, though he has clearly heard the warnings, he pridefully rejects Daniel's counsel and the warning in the vision. And he goes on saying, is not this Babylon uh, a city built by my might and all for my glory? Clearly, there's still a narcissistic ruler here. And immediately as he's speaking these words, we read in verse 31, While this was still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. So Nebuchadnezzar goes from a place. If you imagine the CEO of Amazon, who, by the way, earns uh, about 7,000 times the median income in America, the CEO of Amazon being driven from His place, not simply to just a low-level employee, but being driven to the status of a feral dog that scrounges around the rubbish bin outside the Amazon headquarters. This is the humiliation that has happened. Nebuchadnezzar has been dehumanized as he grows um, hair as long as eagle feathers and his nails like bird claws. It's a bit grotesque looking at this image. And this is what brings him to the place of praise toward God. Finally, the ending doxology, the restoration. His reason, his kingdom, his majesty, his splendor return to him. We see in verses 34 to 37. And to demonstrate that there's surely a level of repentance. Clearly something has changed in Nebuchadnezzar because he says all his ways, that is all God's ways are right And his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I mean, this is the king who had it all. He loses everything. He becomes an animal. And still Nebuchadnezzar says he was right to do that. He was absolutely right to do that. All of his ways are just. He is able to humble those who exalt themselves, who walk in pride. So the story begins and ends with praise to the Most High God. And notice that the the central theme, the story doesn't center specifically on Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, he's the main character in a way, but the story rather centers on the God behind the scenes who is totally able to bring down Nebuchadnezzar and who in the end receives all of the glory. So this story is here to demonstrate one of the key things throughout the book of Daniel. Our sovereign God rules over all that we can see in this world and his kingdom is the one which will stand. 
the only true rule in this world. Now, there are a few key themes. I want to look at four key themes from this story that demonstrate God's kingdom and his rule in contrast to the worldly kingdoms that we see in the rule of Nebuchadnezzar and even in the rule of earthly rulers today. And we can learn much about how we are called to live as people of the king under this kingdom. So the first theme that we clearly see in verse 17, when we think about God's kingdom in contrast to all of the worldly kingdoms, all of the governments today, is that God alone establishes and removes rulers. Verse 17, the whole point of this vision we read in verse 17 is to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. We see the same thing in verse 25. You shall be made to eat grass. You, Nebuchadnezzar, shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. That's what's supposed to happen. Nebuchadnezzar is supposed to realize it's God in control. Verse 26 as well. This is going to happen that you may know that heaven rules. The kingdom of God is in control. There is no leader, no teacher, no officer, no king, no pastor who God is not able to raise up or tear down at any moment. God shows this with Nebuchadnezzar. We see Jesus very clearly saying to Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority if it was not given to you from heaven. Even in dramatic fashion in Acts 12, you might remember the story of King Herod before the people. And when the people attribute godlike status to him, and he doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not God. God strikes him down then and there. He is eaten by worms, specifically because he did not give glory to God. Now, we don't really see that in extraordinary fashion today, as much as perhaps there are some rulers that we might like to see that. We don't see it in the same extraordinary fashion all the time today. But God is no less sovereign over the rulers of today. He is no less sovereign over the Australian government, the Russian and Ukrainian governments and situation. He is totally in control. God will at any time he pleases raise up or dethrone any ruler. So the lesson for Nebuchadnezzar is the same lesson for us. We must know that God alone rules every single kingdom and authority that we can see. There is far too much anxiety amongst followers of Jesus that happens because the hope is too much placed in this world and in the rulers of the world and what they might do for our society. We wait, we live for a heavenly kingdom that is in control. It is wonderfully liberating, as I said earlier, and tremendously comforting to know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Secondly, the second main theme, God desires a God-pleasing heart that will show itself in justice and mercy. This is from verse 27. So God desires a God-pleasing heart that will show itself in justice and mercy. Look at Daniel's counsel to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 27. He says, break off your sins, Nebuchadnezzar. 
by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed so that perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. He's saying, repent and do works that demonstrate that you have a repentant heart. Don't stay obstinate. Demonstrate that your heart has been changed. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness and walk humbly before your God? God desires true justice and mercy in all people, but especially in those whom he has placed in authority. And even though Nebuchadnezzar is not a king of Israel, and so in one sense doesn't have the same standard, nevertheless, he is king over most of the known world at that time, and especially he is king over God's people Israel who were in exile. And so Daniel basically warns him that he should... If you don't want this to happen, Nebuchadnezzar, you should act as God would have any of his kings act in true justice and mercy. Now, I believe the difference between ruling in true justice and mercy or ruling with injustice and wickedness is really the difference between a God-pleasing heart and a self-pleasing heart. A God-pleasing heart rules in justice and mercy. A self-pleasing heart does not. And Nebuchadnezzar epitomizes self-pleasing. Look at the description of Nebuchadnezzar's life in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And then again, his proclamation from the top of his palace. Is this not, is this uh, Babylon not the city that I have built for my own glory by my might? This is a self-pleasing man. It's the classic self-pleasing life of a wealthy ruler. But God desires a man after his own heart, which is a God-pleasing heart. And a God-pleasing heart will reflect the nature of God, who is gracious and merciful, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, I think this is an obvious point for us to see that God would desire those in places of tremendous authority to rule justly. I think we can agree upon that. But let's, let's jump a bridge and apply this to ourselves as people of the king and look at it through the same lens of a God-pleasing heart and a self-pleasing heart. Let's look at the description of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 4. I was at ease in my house and prospering. This is his description. Now, where do we see a similar description of professing Christians like that in Scripture? You might think of the Laodicean church in chapter 3, where they describe themselves. Jesus actually says to the Laodiceans, this is what you say. They say, we are rich, we have prospered, and we have need of nothing. Sounds an awfully lot like Nebuchadnezzar's description of being at ease in his palace and prospering. There is a self-pleasing disease here. And Jesus says to the Laodicean church, you are wretched, poor, pitiable, blind and naked. The only way for restoration in Laodicea was for them to realize their lowly state, was for them to be humiliated and purchase the priceless, invaluable gold from Christ. There was a self-pleasing nature in that congregation where Jesus was outside of their fellowship. He was not with them. 
and he was calling them to repentance. But the only way would be a similar humiliation that Nebuchadnezzar and all those who are prideful go through to have a God pleasing heart. So we should heed the same words of Daniel, which at their core is to deny self pleasing and live for the glory of God, live a God pleasing life. This is the opposite of the kind of pridefulness that comes from a self-pleasing life that then requires God to either cast you off or bring you to the depths of shame and humiliation in order to give you a heart that would desire to please him. And I think Daniel demonstrates that the fruit of a humble God-pleasing heart will bring fruit that reflects God's justice, which is often seen in caring for the most vulnerable. So look back in Daniel to his counsel. He says, break off your sins by showing mercy to the oppressed. This was a constant rebuke from God toward his people, Israel, who oppressed the poor, the most vulnerable of society. You think of Isaiah 58, God rebukes his people for their self-centered fasting, which was simply religious rituals done in a selfish way. And in Isaiah 58, verse 3, God actually says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. This is God's rebuke to his people. You seek your own pleasure. You're doing all of this religious rituals, but you're doing it in a self-pleasing way. You're doing it for your benefit, not for mine. So he says in verse 6 of Isaiah 58, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? Now, this is a passage that should make us feel a bit uncomfortable, particularly those of us in more sort of conservative reform circles that tend to really react against social justice and these sorts of things. It should make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, but still view it through right lenses. This idea of having a heart that reflects God's heart for the most vulnerable. Now, we need to be awfully discerning. And if I had another hour, we could talk about being discerning about social justice and these sorts of things. We need to be very discerning because there's a lot of confusion around this. Simply because you are a white middle-class man doesn't mean you are oppressing minority groups. There's a lot of ridiculousness and absurdity that goes around in intersectionality and all of these things that we could talk about elsewhere. That aside, there is clearly a desire here from God for his people to have hearts that reflect his care and concern for the most vulnerable in society. John, the apostle, says in his first letter in chapter 317, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He's saying that's not possible. You can't have resources and then have the opportunity to see someone in need and close up your heart to them. You can't, that can't happen and for you to still call yourself a follower of Jesus. How does that happen? It can't. So this clearly leaves no excuse for us for withholding support from those in need when we have the resources to do so. And I think John uh, sticks with the, the um, 
pattern in Scripture because he's the Apostle John and he's divinely inspired, but also um, he's very consistent with Paul in, I think, showing a clear priority to this within the covenant community of God's people. So notice John says, if anyone sees his brother, which is a familial term for those within the local church, within the community of God's people. And this is the context. So he's not saying for Christians to uh, have to give their money to every single person. There's a priority for within the local church. Paul demonstrates this in Galatians 6.10, where he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There is a priority to those within the covenant community where we share with the most vulnerable. We don't stop there, but that's the priority. And our hearts should really reflect that of God, which is a desire to uh, provide and care for the most vulnerable in all places. So God desires people after his own heart, both in leaders, in people in places of authority and in followers. And this will manifest in hearts that reflect his care and compassion. And as I said, that should make us feel a little bit uncomfortable as we examine our lives and reflect how we are stewarding well the resources that we have. Are we acting in true righteousness and mercy as we have opportunity? Thirdly, One of the major themes, God does as he pleases. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. God does as he pleases. This is Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion in verse 35. We read, All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? God does as he pleases. This is so important for us where many people in our day are placing God in the judgment seat where there are things that appear in his scripture that they don't like and trying to change him and do some exegetical gymnastics to get around it or place him in the judgment seat and say, why have you done this? Often it is based on quite emotional, visceral responses to something that is not common in wider society. But Nebuchadnezzar comes to the right conclusion where he says, all of the inhabitants of earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among everyone. God does as he pleases. We see this actually in verse 17, uh, toward the back end of it, where uh, the, the word from the watcher says, God sets over it the lowliest of men. That's a word that means uh, those who are abased. It's, it's possibly those who are brought to humiliation, but it actually means those who um, are despicable. That's actually like at its core part of the meaning of the word. And part of the point is that it's God's prerogative to set over the kingdom of men whoever he pleases. And he is able to accomplish his purposes through the lowliest of men, those who have been humbled like Nebuchadnezzar or wicked rulers who are abased and uh, despicable in their minds. And yet God is still able to achieve his purposes. It's his prerogative. God does as he pleases. He does not answer to anyone. Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion is 
Again, awfully similar to a text uh, in Romans 9, where Paul talks about God's sovereign election. Paul gives the example of God raising up Pharaoh and saying that I have raised you up for this purpose. And he says, God mercies whom he mercies and he hardens whom he hardens. And Paul rightly assumes the reader's response where someone would say to that, well, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? If God is mercying whomever he wants and hardening whom he wants to harden, then why is anyone doing anything wrong? And Paul doesn't try to go beyond what we can understand. His answer is quite simply, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Can the, can the one who is molded say to the molder, why have you made me this way? We simply submit to God. We don't try and place him in the judgment seat. God does as he pleases. And where these things are too high and wonderful for us to understand, we submit to him. We remember that his character is only ever good. We remember that whatever he does is right and just. And we do not place him in the judgment seat. A.W. Tozer says, God's sovereignty requires that he must be absolutely free which means simply that he must be free to do whatever he wills to do anywhere at any time to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. Were he less than free, he must be less than sovereign. God does as he pleases. And finally, our final point, just to finish. This is really a theme that the book of Daniel in this passage is pointing us to. The theme of uh, the coming kingdom and the true king. And the main idea here that this story tells us is our need for a true king. This is what we should take away. Our need for a true king. I mean, it's really an incredible transformation from Nebuchadnezzar, as we've seen. It's a wonderful transformation. You have to wonder. We don't actually get the story, but I wonder what his rule was like when he's established back into his place. I wonder if he truly changed. We don't actually have a lot of stories about Nebuchadnezzar after he is brought back to the place of his kingship. But clearly, he has changed to the point where he now praises and extols and honors the true king of heaven. But even as we look at the life of Nebuchadnezzar, and as we look at perhaps the king's of Judah, the faithful kings like Josiah and Hezekiah, these great men, there is still so much to be desired. We, they still fall short. No earthly king has ever been able to rule with true justice and mercy and be a refuge for his people. No one has ever been able to do that. As we read through the book of Daniel, we see that regardless of how powerful the kings and kingdoms are, Within this world, there is one king and one kingdom not cut by human hand, one that cannot be dominated by any earthly power, and that is the one that we long for. I mean, in many ways, Nebuchadnezzar, certainly before his restoration, before his humiliation, he becomes kind of a type of most of the dominant rulers in our world throughout history. He's narcissistic, he's paranoid, he's unstable, and he's power hungry. And often, a lot of the rulers that dominate have those characteristics about them. 
But then when we look at that in contrast to how Jesus demonstrates his kingship, how the God of heaven and earth reveals his king, it's a major contrast. There are actually some similarities to what happens with Nebuchadnezzar to Jesus, but totally in different ways. Nebuchadnezzar is driven to the lowest place. This, is, this was forced upon him. He was obstinate. He was forced to uh, be driven from the highest place to the lowest in absolute shame. In contrast to that, Jesus, well, in similar, Jesus is driven to the lowest place, not by an external force, by his own will, desiring, he willingly gives up his place in order to enter into humanity. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He lowers himself to the form of a servant. He is born in a stable. He appears amongst humble shepherds. He comes to the lowest place and he does it willingly. Every other earthly ruler would never leave willingly. Jesus willingly gives up heaven to then enter into hell in a way that we would then be free from hell to receive heaven. Rather than Jesus sit on a throne and be served, he washes his feet. He washes the feet of his disciples in his earthly ministry. He is moved with compassion by the needs of others. He doesn't come to serve. Um, he doesn't come to be served. Rather, he comes to serve. And rather than only associate with the most powerful, as rulers often do, clicking together with those who they can benefit from. Jesus identifies with the most marginal of people. He actually doesn't associate with those who can get him status. He associates with fishermen, tax collectors and promiscuous women and calls them all to repentance and follow him. Rather than being this temporary tree that is impressive in its time, but then is cut down, Jesus instead is the true vine that will never be cut down, that will never be taken away, that so long as we abide in him, he will never cast us out. It endures from generation to generation. If there is one significant theme through this story and through the book of Daniel, it is the dramatic contrast of all of the rulers and authorities that we see in this world in contrast to the king of heaven and earth, to the kingdom of God that we long for the consummation of and King Jesus, whom we worship right now. Imagine worshiping. Imagine uh, the CEO. If we go back to the, the uh, idea of the Amazon CEO and imagine that person then willingly giving up his title, giving up the fact that he earns 7,000 times more than the average American, giving up that and saying, you know, I'm going to distribute this um, I'm still going to be the boss. I'm actually going to give up my income. I'm going to give up my status. And I'm going to now work in the lowest place. I want to know what it's like to work as a low-level employee. I want to know what it's like to sweep the floors here. I'm going to do all of that so that I can understand you and better serve you. That would be wonderfully comforting for an employee. Now, God doesn't just lord it over us from heaven, though he could. He gives up. He gives of himself. Jesus enters into humanity. He lives as a humble carpenter's son. He lives 
and is tried and tempted in every way as we are so that he can sympathize, empathize with us in every way. And he is the king that we serve. That is a wonderful, wonderful reality. So we don't place our hope in anything of this world. We don't place our hope in any ruler that we can see. We long for King Jesus and his reign that we have the privilege of worshiping now and living under. And yet we wait for the fullness of that. So let's now, uh, with that said, turn to the bread and the juice, turn to the Lord's table to reflect upon this. As we think particularly about this theme of the kingship of Jesus and how he demonstrates that. How does he demonstrate his kingship and his lordship over us? We see it primarily in the cross of Christ, where he is willing to take on our sin upon himself and hang in excruciating agony and face the wrath of God poured out upon him, which we deserved. He is doing that in our place as our king, as our Lord. And he is both the suffering servant, but he is also the lion from the tribe of Judah who, is, who reigns now and who is returning to damn those who have not bowed the knee before him. He is returning on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood. He is returning to demonstrate his kingship in fierceness in destruction and we have both of these pictures the wonderful humiliation of our savior and we now wait for the fullness of his kingdom to come about as he fully defeats his enemies what a privilege that we get both of those pictures we come to the lord's table we see his humiliation we know that he dominates